This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 147, entitled, Jesus Speaks to the Churches of Asia Minor, Part 1. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Hopefully our podcast has encouraged you to have these very important conversations. I appreciate you so much for joining us this week. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We have been exploring how the book of Revelation depicts God and Jesus within its highly symbolic and poetic contents. It has been a lot of fun, and I hope you listeners are enjoying it as much as I am. I also want to note that I recently became a father, so you might hear a baby in the background, and that is a joy for everyone in the household. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will examine the first three letters to the seven churches to see how the risen Jesus speaks to these communities. In particular, we will be asking the question of whether Jesus presents himself in a way that is compatible with a high human Christology. Since we know from church history that the understanding of Jesus' person evolved and developed over time, we will especially be looking to see if there are any hints of this evolution already taking place. Too often, interpreters of the New Testament, who are well aware that the Trinity is not a doctrine held by the earliest Christians, maintain that early believers held a quote-unquote proto-Trinitarian Christology. What they mean when they say proto-Trinitarian is that it is not quite there at what the doctrine of the Trinity says, but it is a step prior to it. However, this step is rarely explained in detail at all. Is the manner in which Jesus reveals himself to the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum well on its way to the doctrine of the Trinity? Or does Jesus reveal himself in a way that is consistent with a high human Christology? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is Jesus Speaks to Ephesus. So, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have seven small letters that were sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. I say the seven churches, there are far more Christian communities that are located there, but there are seven specifically addressed within the book of Revelation. These were real communities. We have ancient evidence to support the fact that these communities existed. We have archaeological evidence, and we have other 
church fathers that talk about these particular communities. We have evidence of church fathers who served in these communities as bishops and who wrote letters to these communities. So these are real communities, and we should read these letters in a similar way to the way that we read the other letters of the New Testament, like Paul writing to Corinth. So let's look at this first letter to Ephesus. We'll just be reading a couple of verses out of it, starting in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds. That's Revelation 2, verses 1 through 2. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. It's Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5. So Jesus presents himself as the one who is currently holding the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What does this tell us about Jesus? Well, the previous verse, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, has already let the readers in on the meaning of these two symbols. Revelation 1.20 clearly states that these seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and that verse tells us that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. It's very important to allow the book of Revelation to reveal its own terms on its own terms. We don't have to ask any questions as to what the seven stars refer to or what a lampstand refers to within the book of Revelation because it tells us already what these images mean. So what does it mean that Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand? Well, it seems to indicate that Jesus has authority over and control over these angels. The fact that Jesus has been elevated above the angels is not something different from what we already see in the New Testament. So what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation is not a development or an evolution of New Testament doctrine. It seems to be consistent with what we see in other places. For example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says that Jesus ascended to God's right hand after angels had been subjected to him. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, after citing Psalm 8 in regard to Jesus, indicates that Jesus was crowned with God's own glory and honor after he was, for a time, lower than the angels. So Jesus was lower than the angels, and then God crowns him with glory and honor that belong to God himself. And it stands that Jesus has been elevated and exalted above the angels. The position of Jesus standing in the midst of these priestly lampstands suggests that Jesus is functioning as a priest. 
perhaps even as the high priest. Now, a priest functioning within a temple setting acts as a middleman between God and the covenant community. That's what priests did on an everyday basis. The biblical priest, who is always a human being, mediates forgiveness and holiness to the people of God. So when someone is described as a priest, this is clearly someone who is distinct from God, but who functions in a role that mediates between the true God and the people of God. There's another fact that often gets overlooked by popular interpreters of the book of Revelation. When you situate the individual letters in their first century Greco-Roman context, it is clear that Jesus addresses each community in ways that are specific to their own social context. For example, Ephesus was known for its massive temple to Artemis. And this temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was a goddess of fertility. But Jesus promises in Revelation 2.7 that the conquering Ephesians will get access to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if the Ephesians were interested in the growth and fertility, they should look to Jesus and not to the goddess Artemis. Obviously, the tree of life located in a paradise would be a place of fertility and growth. The Ephesians, according to Jesus, should constitute a new temple community signified by their lampstand. And this is especially relevant in a city that is known for its own massive temple to Artemis. So Jesus, opening the letter to the Ephesians with a reference to him being in the midst of the lampstands, evokes the temple imagery in a city that was known across the Roman Empire for its own temple dedicated to a fertility goddess the goddess Artemis. A concern that often comes up is, how is it that a human being can function in an omnipresent fashion? How is it that Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God, can also be depicted as walking among the seven churches? This sounds like Jesus is omnipresent. Is that something a human being can do? We learn from the Gospels that the resurrected Jesus has been empowered with the ability to extend his presence. For example, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, the last three verses of the book of Matthew, record Jesus saying that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And there is a promise that Jesus will be with his disciples always, even unto the end of the age. This indicates that Jesus' ability to extend his presence 
is derived from the authority that he has been given from God. Similar instances where Jesus extends himself physically appear at the end of Luke's Gospel and in John's Gospel, both after Jesus' resurrection. We also have Old Testament evidence that indicates that Elisha, the empowered prophet, was able to extend his presence, according to 2 Kings 5.26. It's a very interesting passage, 2 Kings 5.26. I encourage you to study that at your leisure. So there are good reasons to feel comfortable fitting a Jesus who exhibits omnipresent capabilities into a high human Christology. We don't see anything here developed from what we already know is possible for empowered human beings. So we have here a highly empowered Jesus who is exalted above the angels, who mediates forgiveness and holiness in a priestly function, and one who can extend his presence. This human being is also aware of the deeds of those persons within his churches. In fact, Jesus openly admits that he knows their deeds to nearly every one of the churches within Revelation. This is indicative of Jesus functioning in the role of the judge. The New Testament is clear that God the Father, who is the original cosmic judge, has shared this role with Jesus. I like in particular John 5.27, which has Jesus saying that God gave him the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's very interesting. God has given Jesus the role to function as a judge because Jesus is an authorized human being, not because Jesus is divine. Luke chapter 3 indicates that John the Baptist was able to read what was in the hearts of men, and John responded accordingly. So the ability to know someone's deeds is certainly within the realm of what an authorized and empowered human being can accomplish. Lastly, Jesus threatens the Ephesian church with judgment, specifically that Jesus would come and remove their lampstand. This further demonstrates Jesus' awareness of the behavior that is taking place within the Ephesian community and his own ability to enact judgment in terms of church discipline while continuing to use the temple imagery for this church community. On a side note, there is an open debate among scholars of the Book of Revelation as to the timing of this coming of judgment about which Jesus speaks. Some scholars say that this will occur at Jesus' second coming at the parousia, while other scholars say that this visitation of judgment will happen at any random time, whenever Jesus chooses. The fact that there is no longer any Christian presence 
in the region where Ephesus was suggests to me, at least, that the latter judgment situation is what was intended. But that is neither here nor there. That's enough about Jesus revealed to Ephesus. Let's move on to our next Christian community. Our second point today is Jesus speaks to Smyrna. We'll start reading in Revelation 2 and verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. That's Revelation 2, verses 8 through 10. So Jesus begins his address to the Christian church in Smyrna by reminding them of a title that he has already used of himself back in chapter 1. Jesus is the first and the last. We spent a considerable amount of time talking about this title two episodes ago. Briefly, as a reminder, this title reflects Jesus' role as the judge. And this title originally applied to God the Father, but it has been shared with the risen and exalted Jesus in light of the fact that God has given authority to Jesus to judge. The first and the last is a merism denoting the extent and scope of Jesus' judgment, which will encompass the righteous and the wicked in regard to all of their deeds. As the righteous judge, Jesus promises that those conquering Smyrnaeans will be given the crown of life, specifically from Jesus himself. Jesus also acknowledges that he was dead and he has come back to life. This unambiguously proves that Jesus was a mortal, as all human beings are. Jesus died, which is something that God is incapable of doing. God is immortal, meaning it is impossible for God to die. Jesus, on the other hand, died, and God raised Jesus back to life. We should also note that Jesus does not try to qualify his death as perhaps only partially dying, or only seeming to die, or only dying in his human nature while he supposedly has a second divine nature that continued to live on. No, Jesus just plainly states that he, quote, was dead, end quote, and now he is alive forevermore. Now, the locals in Smyrna would have picked up on Jesus' claim 
to have died and now live forevermore in an allusion to their own city. So listen to this. The history of Smyrna is one which had its own death and resurrection of sorts. The city of Smyrna was demolished and captured by the Lydians in 600 BC. And the Lydians deported all of the Smyrnaean residents at that time. The descendants of those who lived in Smyrna, who maintained the Smyrnaean name as a personal identifier, despite the fact of their deportation, eventually rebuilt and relocated the city in the year 290 BC. So the city had its own death in 600 BC and a resurrection of sorts in 290 BC. This is why Jesus identified himself with such terms, because it would resonate personally with the believers in the church at Smyrna. While the death and resurrection metaphors reappear at the end of the chapter, where Jesus promises a crown of life to those believers who are faithful unto death, the specific reward of a crown was also a specific local illusion that would have resonated with the locals in Smyrna. The citizens of Smyrna called their own city, quote, the crown of Asia, end quote. Smyrna's architecture was actually built to resemble a crown encircling the hill at the center of the city. And the encircling ruins still remain to this day. I encourage people to Google images of this city to kind of see these ruins that still remain. Philostratus, who is a Greek-speaking author in the second century, wrote how Smyrna was, quote, crowned, end quote, with men even greater than the city's beauty. So crowning was a metaphor used to describe Smyrna's citizens. And since Smyrna was the first Asian city to conduct games and athletic events, it was also the first city to award these reeds to its victors. Crowns and laurel reeds were especially frequent on the coins that were minted by the citizens of Smyrna. So if you lived in Smyrna, if you were in the church of Smyrna, you would look in your pocket and you could pull out a coin and you could see that it had a crown on it. So it seems appropriate that Jesus, the man who died and came back to life, promises the crown of life to those Christians in Smyrna who remain faithful unto death. Jesus, who was already identified in Revelation 1.5 as the faithful martyr, knows all about what it means to be faithful unto death. If Jesus was faithful, then it means that he had a relationship to someone to whom he owed loyalty and fidelity. That person is God.
Jesus' father. So Jesus, the faithful witness who died and came back to life, asks the Smyrnaean believers to likewise demonstrate faithfulness unto death with the promise of life on the other end. In other words, Jesus functions as both the judge and the example of what it means to be faithful. Let's move on to our third church for this episode. Point number three is Jesus speaks to Pergamum. We'll read a section of this particular letter starting in Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. That's Revelation 2, verses 12 to 13, and I'll continue in verse 16. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. That's Revelation 2, verses 16 through 17. So we have a variety of images and metaphors that Jesus employs as he reveals himself to the believers in Pergamum. The first is that Jesus is the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. This is also, like what we've seen in Ephesus and Smyrna, a local reference that would have been clearly recognizable to the original recipients in Pergamum. The seat of the Roman government for all of Asia Minor was located in Pergamum. The governing proconsul of Asia Minor held a permanent residence in Pergamum. Now, Justinian, who is a famous recorder of Roman law, wrote that, quote, Those who rule entire provinces have full power of the sword. End quote. Justinian says that in Digest, chapter 1, paragraph 18. He says that those who rule the entire provinces have the full power of the sword. And that particular governing proconsul lived in Pergamum. Therefore, the understanding that Asia's governing proconsul possessed the full power of the sword would have been common knowledge to those who lived in Pergamum. But Jesus is the one who now possesses the authority to govern and judge. And this description of Jesus with the two-edged sword subverted the imperial claims that were known throughout Pergamum. So Jesus will come in judgment to make war with the sword. That is, with 
his powerful words that are authorized to judge because this is a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. It's not an actual weapon made of steel. It's his powerful words that are able to cut, they are able to judge. We also see at the end of this letter that Jesus will reward at the time of judgment for those who are considered righteous. He offers three rewards in particular. The first reward is that Jesus will offer the hidden manna. Manna, of course, is food that was known through the Exodus event. Manna is the true nourishing food for those in Pergamum. And if you read a little bit more of the letter to the believers in Pergamum, you can see that some of them were tempted to compromise loyalty to God and the Lamb by visiting pagan temples and eating meat sacrificed to idols. So Jesus says, you're interested in eating, you're interested in food, well, I will give you the hidden manna. I will give you this true, godly, nourishing food. You don't have to compromise and go eat meat sacrificed to the Roman emperor or to Apollo or anything like that. Jesus will offer them the true food that they seek. Jesus also offers a white stone. And a white stone was a stone that was a vote of affirmation. And these stones were used in their local elections where voters would have a white stone and a black stone in their pocket. They would reach in their pocket and they would grab whatever stone they wanted to use for their vote, whether it's an affirmative or in the negative, and they would place their stone in a particular box of stones where nobody could see what stone they chose. But instead, the believers in Pergamum voting for somebody else, Jesus will vote for them. Jesus will give them a white stone of affirmation. And the stone will have a new name written on it. And I believe that the new name likely draws on the story of Daniel, where he and his three Judean friends were exiled to Babylon, and at that time they were given new names. For the faithful in Pergamum, their loyalty would take them out of quote-unquote Babylon and bring them into New Jerusalem, where Jesus promises to give them new names. That is, new identities that are appropriate for those rewarded by Jesus and those who align themselves with New Jerusalem. Now let's talk a little bit about Antipas. Jesus talks about Antipas in the letter to the church at Pergamum, and he calls Antipas his faithful witness. What does this tell us about Jesus himself? We know again from Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 that Jesus is the original faithful witness. And the word witness in Greek is martis, where we get the word martyr. Jesus was the first faithful martyr. 
and by setting Antipas as an example of one who faithfully imitated Jesus' own faithful witnessing of the gospel, we now have two persons to look to as exemplars of what it means to be faithful. Again, Jesus acts as a model of faith, one who lived in obedience to God. As a faithful witness, Jesus loyally witnessed the gospel of the kingdom of God, and Antipas has imitated Jesus in this manner. Readers are urged to follow in the footsteps of both Antipas and Jesus in their acts of faithfulness. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the book of Revelation was originally written to seven Christian churches in Asia Minor towards the end of the first century CE. The risen and exalted Jesus appeared to John the seer on the island of Patmos, and Jesus commanded John to write what he sees to the seven churches. Thus, the contents of the seven churches tell us what Jesus wants to say and what Jesus says about himself. We are able to discern many traits about Jesus based on what he said about himself as he spoke to these Asian churches. First, Jesus portrayed himself in priestly terms, and he regarded the Christian churches to be temple communities of faith. By functioning as a priest, Jesus acted as an intermediary between God and the communities of faith in matters of holy living. Second, Jesus is elevated in rank above the heavenly angels, something that hardly needs to be said of the only true God, but certainly would need to be stated for a human being. Jesus functions as the highly exalted and empowered human being who has been elevated above the angelic host. Third, Jesus clearly understands his role as the authorized and empowered judge who is aware of the deeds of the Christian communities and who is able to act in judgment if the need arises. The role of judge that Jesus possesses is not innate, but rather derived from God the Father. Jesus, therefore, functions in his role of the judge because the authority has been received from God. Fourth, Jesus is able to extend his presence in light of his resurrection and exaltation. While remaining human, Jesus is empowered by God with the authority to be in the midst of the various Christian communities, even though Jesus is physically seated at God's right hand in heaven. Fifth, Jesus is a model of faithful obedience to God, and Revelation expects its ideal readers to demonstrate faithfulness in the manner that Jesus demonstrated. Since Jesus was faithful to God as a loyal witness of the gospel of the kingdom, this makes him an example of what it looks like to act faithfully to God.
without compromise, and without accommodation. Sixth, Jesus crafted each of the letters to the Asian churches in ways that would directly allude to the particular city's local references, especially their history, geography, and form of government. By drawing on these local references, Jesus seeks to encourage readers to look to him and to give up their local loyalties that might interfere with the allegiance that is due to the Lamb. In sum, the portrayal of Jesus expressed in the letters to Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum are consistent with a high human Christology. They do not seem to fit well with an angelic Christology or a Trinitarian Christology. Yes, Jesus is a very exalted figure in Revelation, but he remains a human being who is distinct from the only true God. The Jesus revealed in the book of Revelation has a long way to go before he even starts to look like the Jesus of the Trinity. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Be sure to join us next week as we continue to look at how Jesus reveals himself to the churches in Asia Minor within the book of Revelation. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we continue to promote the powerful truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. I'd encourage you to find us on iTunes and to give us an honest rating and to write an honest review so that we can help reach other people with these important biblical truths. If you feel led to donate to the podcast, there is a PayPal link that is located in the description of this episode. I want to offer a special thanks to the exceptional Dustin Williams for his post-production and his continued editing of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, you folks take care and be safe.